Well, good day, everyone. Good to see you all tonight. Special welcome to Junie. I think this is Junie's first church service. Is that right, Carmel? Welcome back, uh, Wallaces, um, Sam and Carmel. Sam's at the back there waving. Uh, if you don't know, Sam and Carmel, they've been through the, the ringer with uh, health um, challenges in the last few weeks, um, as well as having a baby. Similar to the Dawson story in a way, isn't it? Just a, a month or two behind. Um, but really good to welcome Junie here tonight. And welcome back, Neve. Really good to have you back with us as well tonight. Um, I preached this this morning. It's really uh, quite a heavy, hard-to-preach sermon. So um, we might ask for God's help. Um, and particularly that we are ready to hear what God says in, in something that's hard to hear uh, on a heavy, heavy subject. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the easy bits of your word and also the hard bits, the parts that we find easy to agree with and the parts that we are helped by having our our thoughts and our hearts, our assumptions challenged. Uh, Lord, the reality of judgment, particularly eternal judgment, is a a really heavy one. And so too, Lord, the, the, the state of the world that we live in, we recognize that's part of our cross to bear is an awareness of, of eternity. We pray that we can come to the Lord Jesus with that weight and um, trust him, trust you with it. And uh, Lord, that tonight as we look at this part of your word, we'd be ready to trust it and heed it and, and accept it. Uh, your word is our own in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the most dangerous situations occur when the threat is coming from within. A harmful, deliberate leak, for example, from within a divided political party. Uh, There was that message we saw, was it last year, from Gladys describing ScoMo that really made it hard for ScoMo's campaign to recover. Uh, But most campaigns, that kind of thing happens. Or a virus, an infection, venom. It's okay outside the body, but once it gets into the body, we're in trouble. An aeroplane can get through all kinds of poor weather conditions, but when a terrorist locks himself in the cockpit, um, things are grim. Throughout the Bible, we've seen Israel's biggest threats were not in the forms of Pharaoh or a foreign king or a foreign army. No, with God in their hearts, Israel can withstand them all. Israel's biggest threat was their waywardness, their own hearts, and those who led them away from the Lord, their strength. Yes, although buffeted from the outside, the church is most vulnerable from the enemy within. We tend to self-destruct if you look at church history or you look around Australia. Uh, Rot sets in. A little bit of leaven spreads through the whole dough. In some way, with denominations and churches, prosperity gospel movements, cults, Most of the people in them that are led astray didn't know they were leaving a more Christian or a Christian position into a sub-Christian position. In liberal churches, and I come from a church that has largely strayed away from the Bible altogether, um, in liberal churches they reinterpret or dismiss truths from God's word Sunday by Sunday, and the precious flock get accustomed to the taste of poison in in the well. I was teaching about this liberalism issue to someone who was completely unaware of it. 
in her 50s at Bible College, and she'd grown up in one of these churches. And for her, it was an aha moment. She said, my home church experience makes sense now. Looking back, I never heard the gospel from my minister at church. I only started hearing the gospel of my earlier childhood that I'd learned from my parents when I moved to towns and heard it again in the church there. And yes, so now we're in chapter 2. We see why everything in chapter 1 is so critical. The wolves have entered the sheep pen. There are false teachers ready to pick any low-hanging fruit, Christians half asleep, those who aren't eagerly pursuing the types of virtues and and things that make us resilient that he pointed out in chapter 1, growing in godliness. So Christians who are half asleep, Christians whose knowledge of Jesus is cold, the doctrine is foggy, the half-hearted Christian not pursuing godliness, the Sunday churchgoer whose principles on Monday are easily compromised or bought, the modern Christian whose ethics are shaped unwittingly more by the ABC than by their Bible, sheep whose great vulnerability when various forms of folly come along is that they aren't at all close to the shepherd or his flock. Such people and families sadly fade away from church roles all the time, year after year. And Australia gradually becomes more secular at the same time. So to be forewarned is to be forearmed, and this is a very real problem. Uh, The warning of false teaching is the biggest warning in the New Testament, more than any other sin, more more than any other problem. And so 2 Peter's a wake-up call to the casual Christian. Now in two... In chapter 2, Peter calls us to be aware, firstly, in verses 1 to 3, of the false teachers who mislead the spiritually vulnerable. Verses 1 to 3. Verses 4 to 10, then, I'm just giving you the big picture. Peter says, be assured, God rescues the godly and punishes misleaders. And third, in the second half of chapter 2, Peter leaves us in no doubt about where the false teacher's path leads. So first then, the false teachers who mislead the vulnerable. He writes there in chapter 2, verse 1, but, contrasting with the true prophets of chapter 1, verse 19, but there were also false prophets among the people, besides the true, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now notice what these false teachers do, how they do it, and the effect they have. And these first three verses are a summary, really, of them. They'll secretly introduce destructive heresies, Now, when we hear the word heresy in English, that's a pretty strong word, and we think of something pretty serious. But the Greek word here can simply mean, it can mean heresy as we mean it, but it can also mean just a variant or an opinion that came to mean a stronger form of heresy. So sometimes we hear Christians speaking of, well, that's my interpretation of the Bible. Yeah, it's a bit novel. Um, I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul was getting at, but that's how I take it, that kind of thing. Or perhaps, I know Paul says this, but God is a God of love after all. Surely his love trumps this verse. And suddenly the anchor with God's word is gone. An incremental move leads to incremental move. He writes, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their deprived conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction 
has not been sleeping. I wonder if the types of people causing havoc in Corinth when we read Corinthians is the same problem being described here, the similar kind of people. Um, they were there in the first early centuries BC, they were there in the first and second centuries AD, a, a group called the Sophists, uh, who were trained as orators for legal cases or for entertainment. And they had influencer-type roles. And they cared more about eloquence and praise and display over substance, luxury over pitiful discipleship. Uh, we don't know for sure who they are. That's, that's my guess. Something like what was going on in Corinth. And Paul really takes this worldly wisdom and eloquence and, and speech and, and replaces that with the, the simple but profoundly powerful wisdom of God. Uh, a similarity today might be a mega church pastor, very smooth, very suave, says what the crowds want to hear and enjoy their mansions and their private jet at the same time. You can see on YouTube uh, some of that world or, or that uh, documentary on Netflix, um, the American Gospel, something like that. Even what we might consider strong, conservative Sydney churches are vulnerable as well to deviations, variations in place of what the Bible plainly teaches. Cultural pressure is always there. It's not just in our generation. It's always there. It's constant. And it's always easy to try to meet the, and tempting to meet the culture halfway, deviating from what the church has always thought. The Bible conveniently reinterpreted to move with the times. Now, on one level, this can be good. Um, we do need to move with the times in, in the sense that our culture is changing and we need to give the timeless gospel in ways that our, our current context can understand it. But some alarm bells should be ringing. And the question honestly asked as well, if we're interpreting things in a way that the church hasn't in the past, we might be wondering, why are we reading this passage so differently now? As an honest question to ask ourselves, is it because we want to read it differently Consequences of the loose biblical interpretation are both predictable and disturbing. He mentions verse 1, denying the lordship of Jesus. That's where it can lead, bit by bit, and the obedience he deserves. And we might think of grace becoming cheap grace, which is just little steps, but it gets there. Prosperity preaching, where yes, God wants to bless your life, and you just tweak it a little bit, and, and therefore he'll give you health and wealth, and your business will succeed. Uh, we can follow cultural ethics instead, verse 2. Might be a way we end up with deprived conduct, not, in, not only tolerating it, but ended up ending up approving it. Next, verse 2, bringing disrepute on the way of truth. And haven't we had enough of the scandals of megachurches, denominations like our own, that might protect or relocate offenders instead of dealing with them? Verse 3, it says, excuses greed as sheep are exploited, like those who send money perhaps to the televangelists who promise to pray for their blessing and multiply their money. Send in $100 and God will give you 300 But he's such an entertaining preacher, podcaster, author. Not so much in the Bible, sure, but it's so easy to listen to, so inspiring. He gets us laughing and nodding. Bravo! That's the kind of teacher, that's the kind of person the sophists were and, and what seems to be going on here and in Corinth. No, we want to be the 
having Peter's fatherly cry in chapter 1, remember, still clearly ringing in our ears. Remember the true Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Keep pursuing his virtuous ways that will protect you and keep you from stumbling and surely lead you to your eternal inheritance. Remember the prophet's words. This isn't a new message. Remember Jesus' glory and that we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. There's our anchor that Peter gave us in chapter 1. So how does he address this danger here in chapter 2? I take it it's by declaring what God makes of all of this. That's what godly people tend to do. They, they think of things from God's point of view. What does God make of this? What does God make of these soft decisions or perhaps the hard distortions where we turn Christianity into a whole lot of rules? We can go both ways with the gospel. Well, Peter will say, don't go their way, even if for no other reason than this, that their path is surely a deathly one. God is not only at the end of the path, his judgment seems to be all over this path. This is the judgment path. And he starts this description from verse 3, and we'll carry it through. He writes in verse 3 there, Their condemnation has been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. They've forgotten that very ancient word, that when you eat of it, you will surely die. They're clumsily approaching the lion and, and thinking they can steal her cubs, not aware that the lion is very much awake. And this, says Peter, is what sinners do when they willfully sin even more so when they are teachers of God's people, whom James warns will be judged more severely. How dare they, we might think, popes, archbishops, pastors, elders, anyone entrusted with the teaching of God's word. We have to be so careful not to use the word for our own inferior motives and repent and repent again when we find ourselves corrupting Christ's bride or seeking to have our way with Christ's bride in order to have our own needs or desires met and leading her further from her husband. This is so important. Peter dwells on it, taking us right back to Genesis, showing us this isn't a new problem. And notice as he picks up from verse 4, there is an if-God statement followed by three examples, three if-Gods. If God did this and this and this, then, verse 9, the point of it all becomes clear. So read with me the competing, or the compounding ifs from verse 4. For if God did not spare angels, then, now there's spirits being described here, good and bad spirits, I take it. And I think from Genesis chapter 6, that seems to be the strongest argument when I look in the commentaries, um, people really digging into these verses. Um, God did not spare angels or spirits, messengers when they sinned, but sent them to this judgment place. In the footnote there it says Tartarus, which is a holding place, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. The second if, verse 5, refers now to Genesis 6 to 9, so all of this coming from Genesis. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, that one's more straightforward, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, Noah's family. The third if is in the, there in verse 6, drawing from Genesis 18 to 19. If he condemned the cities of Sodom, from which we get the word sodomy, I take it, the, the male-to-male sexual intercourse that our culture celebrates with pride, resembling Sodom's pride. 
if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the deprived conduct of the lawless. But that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Notice the way that God's people are being described here. And you might think, am I similarly upset, disturbed, affected by the sin of my culture? Or am I more concerned that our churches are getting behind the times in our ethics? Three times righteous is the adjective here to describe a righteous man distressed, verse 7. A righteous man, verse 8, whose righteous soul was in torment by the depravity he saw and heard. A real polarizing Removing this grey, righteous evil. And so are you disturbed by our world, brothers and sisters? Perhaps tonight's a reminder. In Jeremiah, there's a lamentation over the sin going on in Jerusalem and a judgment upon those who aren't lamenting what's going on. Billy Graham's godly wife, Ruth, was disturbed. Ruth said... If God does not one day judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. If God does not one day judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Why do Americans and Australians think all is well in life and death, no matter how we behave, how we treat each other, what harm we cause, what laws we create as though we're our own master? And why are we as Christians at ease with our society's degraded, harmful norms that develop? Do they not break our heart? If God does not one day judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. To the degree the Bible is not our guide, we are to that degree in danger of calling evil good and good evil. To use Jeremiah's phrase again. And when we see our culture saying, affirm us or be despised, we need to be ready to say we can't, we won't. We love you, we care for you, but we can't wear that jersey. Even if it tears my beloved team apart, even if it leads us to miss the finals that we've been striving all year to make, even if it brings the fury of the media upon us, And we can't go to the stadium because of fear. Security issues. Here we stand. If I am causing offence by echoing Scripture's warning on this, I certainly don't mean to do that. But it may be our offence is coming because we've taken the world's view of things more than we realise. And while the Apostle is having a go at the sin of society to deter the church from absorbing it, Remember his chief target is the people promoting worldliness within God's holy church. At Christian academic conferences, false teachers are given the same applause as the rest. Some Bible colleges consider it wise for a variety of perspectives to have a mix of conservatives and liberals on their teaching staff. And the result is confused students. By I mean By liberals, I mean those who distrust the Bible, who cut pieces out of it or or say Paul was, was wrong on this. But 
the result is confused students, partially misled, and sent out to unsuspecting congregations that are just hoping for a faithful pastor. One commentator describes chapter 2 here as Peter's violently and colourfully expressed tirade. Colourfully expressed tirade. It's a tirade. He's angry. This is one of the heavier chapters in the Bible. Some people call it sub-Christian. Beneath Jesus. But Jesus, remember, similarly gets fired up at those who mislead God's flock. Just two days ago, an elderly woman um, at a funeral I was attending, leading, she was a little apologetic that she doesn't go to church anymore, but grateful for the service and grateful that she was here. She shared with me that she turned off from Christianity while at her church school all those years ago. She encountered, she said, a joy, dullness, stern form of religious moralism. They weren't her words, but that was the picture. Who is responsible for that presentation of Christianity in her school? And did anyone get angry about it? Was there any tirade? We need clear-minded boards, CEOs, principals, Christian staff, elders, Christians generally. Disciples who recognize false teachers in teaching positions may be receiving far more respect in our institutions than would be given by the apostles. Now, sometimes John Calvin is disliked because he calls false teachings and the teachers out by name. He calls a wolf a wolf and he warns sheep that they be warned from these particular people and influences. I'm not sure we get so much of that in our church culture today where there's so much variety and, and we're perhaps afraid not to judge things. But if you, you get to see a wolf killing a sheep, it's a disturbing scene. But far worse is the harm done to souls redirected away from heaven and towards God's judgment. God's eternal judgment. And so the run of examples comes to a head in verse 9. If this and this and this is so, then here's the point. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So if you're withstanding, if you're holding on, keep holding on. God's got you. And to hold the unrighteousness, the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is very simple, isn't it? But it's something our church needs to keep hearing. It's so simple I've actually brought the same message along in a children's Bible to illustrate. So I'll read, with skipping a little bit, the Jesus Storybook Bible. A storm is coming, God told Noah, but I will rescue you, I promise. The storm was going to wash away all the hate and sadness and everything that had gone wrong and make the world clean again. God had brought, thought up a way to keep Noah safe, but Noah would have to trust God and do exactly what God told him. So Noah built an ark. Noah's neighbors came out to watch and point and laugh because they didn't believe Noah about the boat or the storm or needing to be rescued. And Noah must have looked rather silly. His boat was in the desert. The desert was nowhere near the sea, and there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. Why would anyone need an umbrella, let alone a boat? But Noah didn't mind so much what other people thought. He minded what God thought. So he just did what God told him to do. 
When the ark was ready, God said, All aboard! And Noah's family and all the animals climbed inside. Then God shut the door. We read in verse 9 that the flood happened once. We weren't there, but its siren call is still calling out to the world, loud and clear. Those judgment events in the Old Testament, whether it's on Pharaoh, whether it's on Noah, these are just little shots over the bow of the eternal judgment that's ahead. These are just analogies, illustrations, mild judgments. The removal of Canaan out of the land is small compared to the the great judgment ahead, but it's all illustrative. It's a teaching aid. And the teaching aid says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Well, thirdly, where does the false teacher's path lead? Peter points that out. From verses 10 to 16, now that he's set out the principles... He gets now more into the specifics, I take it, of these false teachers before him. And he seems to invoke the language of Proverbs, that ancient book describing folly, to now describe the false teachers. There's a lot of echoes in the same vocabulary being used. And so the vices here contrast the virtues that we saw last week of the father urging wisdom, urging knowledge, urging fear of of the glorious Lord because he sees folly before his eyes and his son, those he cares for in the church, his children, potentially falling for her, taken by her, a form of the wayward adulteress, which isn't, I take it, just sexual temptation, but it's any idolatry that leads us away from God. So with limited time, let me move to the powerful concluding section from verse 17. Peter says godliness leads to Fullness in chapter 1 and great blessing and, and um, holding on to our, our sure foundation. Are these guys fruitful and blessed? No, we see they're as fruitful, verse 17, as springs without water. They promise, but they don't deliver. They're mists, driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. I take it the extra blackest, extra black in the darkness because they're misleading. This is, this is a particular description of false teachers. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. The next verses are sometimes used to say Christians can lose their salvation which undermines the really important doctrine of assurance. We're to be clear and sure that we're going to be in heaven because we have the Holy Spirit to call God Father. We've been adopted. That once saved, we're always saved. And God doesn't unadopt his children. So if it's not a loss of salvation, what is it? Scripture never contradicts Scripture. It can't mean that. But it gets close to that, I think, to make a really important point, a real warning that these people were pretty much in at church, like those who caused trouble in Corinth were inside the church, but needed to be expelled, expel the immoral brother, Paul says. These people were churchgoers, seemingly in the fold, like some of today's greatest opponents of the church, 
They might think of Fearing or Dawkins or Hitchens, those who knew the church from the inside before leaving it and then working against it, if my understanding of their stories is correct. Knew enough about the faith to make them dangerous, but I take it never born again along the way. Let's take a look from verse 20 to see what I mean. It seems to describe Christians, but I take it they're just short of Christians. If they have escaped the corruption of the world, ESV, through the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Why, if you know what you know about Christ and righteousness and sin, why would you make yourself more culpable by choosing sin again? That life you'd partially and for a time left behind, and now you lead others into it with you. Anywhere but Christ and biblical Christianity, it seems. I know of a pastor who moved up the coast he was going from an evangelical, Bible-believing church to a church that um, was more liberal, high Anglican, and, and, and didn't want him coming to them and asking them to open their Bibles, for example, or, or to preach through the Bible as, as we do week by week. Uh, one of the previous leaders of the church was still in the church and urged them to think, we would rather die than to become an evangelical church. Don't try to do that to us. They choose to return, these people choose to return to their pre-church experience of chaos and ruin, darkness, vomit, and mud, to use Peter's words. What they are doing makes no sense. But it constantly happens. And we the sheep are blessed if we are keenly aware of it. I feel like we could go around the room and, and share many examples of this. Certainly I could from a in academic circles, in Bible college settings, in denominations, it's in institutions. There are sad stories of churches down to the individual. But I think it's enough to say in conclusion the truth of God's word will set us free and we need to trust it. And even enticing distortions lead to places we don't want to go. And so let's finish with the words of Spurgeon, which I provide in your service sheet today, who leads us from considering sin to considering the Lord Jesus, who helps us with sin. And he even helps us with this topic of sin and its heaviness. Therefore, he writes towards the bottom, Dear Christians, hate evil unless you desire more trouble. If you wish to litter your path with thorns and fill your death pillow with needles, then neglect to hate evil. But if you desire to live a happy life and die a peaceful death, then walk in the way of holiness, hating evil until the very end. If you truly love your Saviour and wish to honour him, then hate evil. There is no better cure for a Christian's love of evil than abundant fellowship with the Lord Jesus. If you spend your time with him, it will be impossible for you to be at peace with sin. And so the Lord Jesus is the one we go to with our sin, and he's also the model, isn't he, of the one who has such a distaste for sin, but also a deep love for sinners and holds those things together. Well, let's pray. Our holy, holy, holy God, 
You think of Peter who experienced your holiness in the boat and said, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And yet he was one who knew your grace and mercy, uh, that the holy God was merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And Lord, we don't want to put your love at odds with your holiness. We want to hold them both together. We don't want to be a church that accepts a cheap grace where sin doesn't matter anymore because you'll forgive it anyway. No, Lord, we want to treat you as God. Uh, We want to remove sin from our lives. We pray for your Spirit's help in that. And we pray that we might be more and more captivated by Jesus, his grace, and desire to live in his holy ways after him. Lord, help us to have a deep compassion for our world, a world that just loves sharing the good news of Jesus with it. And we pray, Lord, that you use this congregation to bring more sheep into your fold. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.